Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, July 28th, we are studying Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. Jephthah was initially rejected by his own relatives, but now, now he will be summoned as a leader for his people and attempt a diplomatic resolution to Israel's conflict with the Ammonites. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is a pleasure. Pastor Roth, as we get started this morning, let's let's talk context. We've come out of a pretty transitional text in the book of Judges yesterday. We didn't see any new judges arise. Today we're going to see the, the start of the Jephthah cycle. What do we need to know about the book of Judges as a whole and more immediate context as well that will help us into these first verses of chapter 11? All right, I want to start a little big picture here. Um, I want to start with a quote from A.A. A. Milne. Pastor Apple, do you know who A.A. A. Milne is? Isn't he the author who's responsible for Winnie the Pooh? He sure is. That's right. Yes. Listen to this quote. All right. The Old Testament is responsible for more atheism, agnosticism, disbelief, call it what you will, than any book ever written. It has emptied more churches than all the counter-attractions of cinema, motor bicycle, and golf course. Now, leaving aside that he calls motorcycles motor bicycles, uh, what do you think of this quote? Well, I, I, I read it in your notes that you sent me ahead of time. And my my take on it, or at least where I figured he's coming from, is that when we see the less than savory parts of the Old Testament, that that bothers people and it pushes away from the faith. That's kind of the what I was gathering, but I could be wrong. I think that's probably what he's getting at, too. You know, he's coming out of a Victorian English England period, and um, I, I could see how he'd be scandalized. And I, I'm, you've probably had this experience of catechizing people who look at some of the stuff in the Old Testament and are just shocked and horrified. And honestly, there's some shocking and horrifying stuff in there. So I think that what we need to do, of course, as always, <clears throat> is we have to start looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New. And the Christian starting point for Jephthah from Judges 11 and just for Judges and in, in general uh, is from Hebrews 11. Let me read this passage, uh, five verses from Hebrews 11. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish when those who were disobedient, with those who were disobedient, because she'd give, given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of Samuel and Dave, David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So what we have here is an emphasis on faith, not on works of piety and justification by grace, not the holiness of living of the Old Testament features, uh, the Old Testament figures. 
you know, you, you couldn't scrub clean the reputations of all of these people. Um, rather, the only thing that can make them redeemable is the redemption that our Lord has given to them. So the, New T- the Old Testament is a book filled with sinners in need of redemption, not a catalog of virtuous heroes to be imitated. That's not to say that there aren't many noble examples to follow, but really the Bible is about sinners who need a Savior. What do you think? No, I think that's helpful. What, why, why is that an important thing to remember, that the, the Old Testament particularly, as we see the sins of the saints, I mean, why, why is that a helpful thing for someone like A.A. A. Milne, who, who looks at it and sees, sees it as a scandal, that look at, look at how evil they were in the Old Testament. Why, how does that help someone like that? I think that for, for someone like him who wants to emphasize moralism and niceness, um, it, it might be helpful, first of all, to have a reality check about human nature. Um, you know, if you go back to Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's only modern romanticism and sentimentalism that assumes people are basically good. The fact is that we're all poor, miserable, wretched sinners, and it's only by the grace of God that our uh, grosser, uh, more excessive vices don't uh, just spiral out of control. So I think that would be one point. Uh, The other is simply that our Lord does work through, I don't know, scandalous means, right? First Corinthians, First Corinthians one talks about how the cross is a stumbling block, and there could be nothing more wretched and horrible than the crucifixion of an innocent man put to death by sinners uh, as the means of redemption for the whole world. So I think that the fact that our Lord works through evil and works through evil men to bring about good purposes is a really important lesson, and it's one that's just not very palatable to romantics. Mm, very true. And I, I think, you know, if you don't have these accounts in the scriptures, then the scriptures turn into a, a book that's really just, I mean, it becomes fictional. It, how, how, do you, how do you not account for these, these sorts of accounts? You know, these are the, this is what life looks like when we're honest. And especially, I think, in a, you know, in a world today of social media, where we do tend to sanitize what we put out publicly this is texts like this, and and even the text we've got today isn't the worst of the Book of Judges no. by any means, but but texts like this and and other parts in the Book of Judges remind us what real life is like. That it's it's not that perfect Instagram photo or Facebook profile picture that you put out there so that everyone thinks your life is is picture perfect. Real life looks like this. Real sin looks like this. And for real sinners in their real sin, we need a real Savior. And, and when we see the sins and the shortcomings of men like Jephthah, Samson, we've seen Gideon already, we're pointed forward, at least from the book of Judges then, to the ultimate Savior who is coming, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is certainly true. Yeah, and we also find encouragement in that, you know, Samson and David both struggled with unbelief. And that manifested itself in sexual sin and violence. But we can, we who struggle with very real sins in our own lives can recognize that he can work his purposes through, through sinners like us. And then today we're going to look at Jephthah, who's a man of violence. 
He's he's petty. He's prideful and rash. We'll not look at his rashness so much today, but that's something you'll cover tomorrow. Right, right. And I think the, that text from Hebrews 11 that you read earlier is always a good one for us to keep in mind, particularly in the book of Judges, because it is easy to focus on the sins, the shortcomings, the faults of these judges, and not that we're certainly not going to ignore them. But we do tend to, to forget that these two are men who lived by faith, that faith that the Holy Spirit had worked in them had not died fully. And it's, I mean, this is what the struggle of the Christian life looks like, is this, this struggle between unbelief on the one hand and that new man, the, the, the faith that has been worked by the Holy Spirit. Those two things are constantly struggling, and we see that struggle throughout the book of Judges. It probably leans toward showing us their sins and their faults a lot more. But that reminder of Hebrews 11, I think, is, is very helpful, lest we become prideful today, thinking that, that somehow oh, I, I would have never fallen into the sins that I see in Jephthah or Samson, for example. No, look, look at what happened to these men of faith and take warning and also then take comfort, as, as you were saying. So uh, more specifically then to Jephthah, as, as we're moving toward that text particularly, then what sorts of, of context, themes from what we read yesterday do we need to pick up going forward into chapter 11? Yeah, okay, so as you mentioned earlier, this is a very unsavory period of time. And and um, there are, of course, difficulties in lining up the number of years of peace, oppression, and judges' reigns, since the judges weren't always all over Israel and there was overlapping. Yesterday, you and Pastor Zimmerman uh, were talking about the overlap between Jephthah and Samson and their geographical differences. So Israel at that time was not a unified geographical and political entity. So by analogy probably even on a much larger scale, we can say that Smithville, Texas, St. Louis, Missouri, New York City, and Portland, Oregon are all part of the United States. But, you know, prior to the age of telecommunications, most people in those locations wouldn't have been aware of anything going on in the other places. Uh, it is worth reminding ourselves of how radically different the world is that we live in today than most of human history. Now, it's likely that Jephthah was dealing with the Ammonites and at the same time that Samson was battling the Philistines. Um, we also know that this period of the judges lasts from roughly Joshua's death to Samuel. So it's probably about 350 years. And uh, again, as you talked about with Pastor Zimmerman yesterday, during this time we've got a repeated cycle that just leaps off the page. It's the Old Testament church falling away from the Lord. He delivers them into judgment under foreign oppressors. They cry out in prayer for help. They repent. The Lord raises up a judge. So, as Pastor Zimmerman said yesterday, we've entered the relapse phase, which will lead to the Lord's ruination uh, and, and judgment. And then at the end of Joshua 10, they repent, which leads into the judge Jephthah arising. Right. So, we're, we're in this—the text that we've got today is going to be a part of that repentance into the rescue phase of, of that stage. And, and the rescue we'll see really more in tomorrow's text— but we do start to see the beginning of that with the initial story of, of Jephthah, who he is, where he comes from, how it is that he ends up being a leader for God's people. Uh, Pastor, Pastor Roth, other, other thoughts here on, I mean, this whole cycle that we've seen in the book of Judges, that it gets repeated, which maybe strikes us as like, how, how is that possible that they just keep falling back and back and back? Where does that start 
Why are we seeing it repeat so often here in Judges? So I think that one one aspect of this is is human nature um, is is by, sinful human nature it tends toward polytheism, and and this is because we want to get as much help as we possibly can from the divine. So it's worth remembering that the Israelites never really completely just kicked the Lord out of their worship. Uh, it is that the Baals and the Ashtaroth and so on were supplemental gods. And as Pastor Zimmerman said yesterday, you know, if you saw the the gods, uh, you know, neighboring gods seemingly producing a better crop, well, you you know, you're tempted to pray to that god. And so the essence of pagan religion really is to, you know, to, to seek out other gods. And, and it's it's strict monotheism that is kind of the rarity and, and is, is difficult to practice because, as, as Luther said, the heart is a perpetual manufacturer of idols. Um, and we see this borne out in Judges. So just a reminder about what starts the cycle back in Judges 2. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that, whole whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So this is a reminder that a church is never more than one generation from losing the faith. God, as the saying goes, God has no grandchildren, only children. Right. Yeah, the, the importance of teaching the faith. Keep going, Pastor Roth. Yeah. So, again, we, we often wonder, like you said earlier, how, how could this have happened? Why didn't they know better? Well, it's because forgetfulness is the perennial problem for Israel and for us. Again, as, as Pastor Zimmerman said, we're a microcosm of Israel, continually straying, forgetting our duty to the Lord during the week, and then returning to confess our sins and receive the Lord's absolution. But uh, I think we can also look to current political or social events, I guess I should say, and, and see an analogy that people's memory is pretty short. For example, New York City was just a terrible mess back in the 70s and 80s. So you had a reformist mayor, the police commissioners, some stricter DAs got on uh, tougher on crime, and they made New York City one of the safest cities in the nation. And now, pretty quickly, it's degenerating into chaos. And you, you've got commentators who've lived there for 40 or 50 years, and they know what it was like before. And they feel like the city has to learn this lesson every 30 years or so, that you need law and order. But it's easy to forget that lesson when things are orderly. Once you lose the stability, it's really difficult to get it back. And in the period of the judges, the Lord is sending people like Jephthah to restore order to, you know, to, to um, I guess, protect the borders of the kingdom, too, and although it's mm, not a kingdom yet. Sure, but, but the kingdom of God, right? I mean, and, and yeah. then, you know, later in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king. It'll be repeated several times in those last several chapters of the book. Yeah, can we, can we the, just briefly talk talk about that phrase? Sure. Because I've been yeah. ruminating over it, right? Of course, it is pointing forward to the to the kingdom and the Lord finally granting uh, a king in Saul, and which Samuel is very displeased about. But, you know, could it also possibly mean that, obviously, we know the Lord was supposed to be the king. And so could it be that the lawlessness is an indication that they really rejected the Lord as their king? And, you know, the, the, the giving of a, an earthly king ends up becoming more or less a concession uh, on the part of the Lord. And, um, you know, not, not some sort of ideal. Um, so, so it is in the rejecting of the Lord as king that leads people to do what's right in their own eyes. No, I, I think you're right on that. The, the, and again, that phrase comes up 
starting in chapter 17 through chapter 21, the end of the book, you might call it an epilogue, where it really, the focus of the book of Judges shifts from the judges as individual figures more to the nation of Israel as a whole and, and the life of the people at large. And I, I think you're right that that phrase, in those days there was no king, doesn't only point to the fact that Saul has not arisen as the first monarch in the land of Israel yet, but also to the fact that the people of Israel, by and large, have forsaken the Lord as king. And it's already happened in the book of Judges, so that what Samuel pronounces, or I guess it's what the Lord tells Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Saul becomes king, that the people have rejected the Lord, this has already happened in the book of Judges. And, and what we're seeing in the book of Judges, then, is the effect of what does life look like when you have rejected the Lord as king, when you live in the kingdom of the world, first and foremost, rather than seeing yourself first and foremost as a member of God's kingdom and living under his rule, what does it look like? Well, it, it looks like this. And you get glimmers in this part of the book of Judges where a, a judge arises and in at least some faithfulness rules, governs according to what God would have as king. You get that that picture, but by and large, it's a time of, of unfaithfulness because, because of this idolatry. Any more introductory matters, Pastor Roth, before we move into the text proper? There is one more, but let me also just comment there. Um, you know, a recent survey or poll indicates that only about 6% of of people in America have a biblical worldview. Now, of course, you can debate the merits of polls and all that, but let's just grant, let's just say only 6% of of people in America have more or less the same conservative Christian viewpoint that, that you and I have. Um, I mean that that's pretty striking, and you know, given given the rise of atheism and agnosticism and and you know all all other manner manner of religiosity, um, it it is not then surprising to see a degeneration into chaos when literally everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. Um, okay, so um, I also want to uh, pick up one more theme from yesterday's reading that I think deserves a bit of emphasis, and and it's a phrase that appears at least twice in Judges. The Lord sold Israel into the hands of their enemies. So first in Judges 2, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And then in yesterday's reading, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. Now this, this term selling is the same one in Hebrew used to describe selling into slavery. And then also, the, it's the term that corresponds to being redeemed. Uh, and and um, now the language of redemption is completely absent from, from Joshua and Judges. You, you will get some, in, in, a lot in Ruth. But the redemption of Israel in the Exodus, of course, is all over the books of Moses. This is the event of salvation. So that's just assumed as the background for what's happening in uh, Joshua and Judges. And it's striking that the Lord who redeemed Israel now is selling his people back to surrounding enemies. But again, this is because they are rejecting him as king, because they are essentially longing for the flesh pots of Egypt and continue to go back to, um, to idolatry, uh, rather than stay with the Lord who had said, I am the Lord, the beginning of the commandments, I am the Lord your God uh, who redeemed you from Egypt, you shall have no other gods. I, I think you were the one that that taught me this. This is a you get the did you call it Burger King theology where the Lord yeah. lets you have it your way? Uh, yeah, the I mean, one. I, you you see that 
I think you and I talked about it first in the book of Exodus, but you see it here in the with with Pharaoh getting it his way. The Lord lets him have it his way. Here it's the Lord letting his own people have it his way. Yep. Or, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, right. We, and 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 we, you know, I, I I mean, I do think I think Dr. Nagel pointed out at one point, you know, the, the Old Testament can be depressing reading because you just see the same cycle over and over and over again. And um, you know, it's it's almost like the Lord is rubbing our face in um, how bad things can get so quickly, and it's just simply urging us to live each day in repentance. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's see how that plays out then in the account of Jephthah. We're in Judges chapter 11 this morning. We'll read the couple, first couple verses here before the break. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. All right, we'll just take those three verses here before the break. Pastor Roth, this is the introduction of Jephthah the Gileadite. We're really going to, as you said earlier, we're dealing with the Ammonites as the threat here. Later in the book of Judges, the Philistines will become this concurrent threat that Samson will deal with. So this is the introduction to that. We've got Jephthah the Gileadite. Just take us into what we know about him from this brief introduction. <laughs> well, it's hard to do a psychology based on just a few verses. But, uh, you know, being being the son of a prostitute and, and having lots of other brothers um, from Gilead's um, wife, um, obviously is going to mark him. And so he's going to be a social outcast. And, you know, as, as is typical, he's going to end up having a chip on his shoulder. It almost reminds me of the boy named Sue, right? He had to, to grow up tough. And uh, I'm sure Jephthah had to grow up tough. That's right. And that's what leads him to be a, a, a mighty warrior. Um, and, and this is more than just, you know, his, his brothers picking on him and saying, your mother's a whore. I mean, this surely was true oppression. I also just put a pin in this, but it, this has a certain Hagar and Ishmael feel to it, doesn't it? What do you think? Mm. I, I think so, where, where you get that that animosity between brothers, which I suppose, I mean, it, it certainly the account with Hagar, Ishmael, and then when Isaac is born, I mean, there's that definite feel. But the, the animosity between brothers, the more I've, I've read the book of Judges, and, and when you start looking through the scriptures, it's really a recurring theme throughout. I mean, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. You've got oh, yeah. sons of, I mean, well, Jacob and Esau. Uh, oh, you've yeah. Got the, the son. So it's, it's all over. But I, I do think, to, to pinpoint more precisely, Hagar and Ishmael, and then the relationship that comes when, when Isaac is born, is not a bad parallel to consider. Yeah. Now, um, what does he go off and do? All right, so he goes and lives in the land of Tob, and we're told that worthless fellows collected around him and went out with him. This is fairly obscure, but I think it's pretty clear that it means that he had charisma. You know, he was a mighty warrior, a warlord, gang leader, I guess you'd say. Um, and this is not in the Hebrew text, but the, the Vulgate translation indicates that some of the guys that go out with him and consider him their leader or their chief uh, or brigands or pirates. So I think that's the way we, we you know, we need to, to view this, view him as, as, a, as a, a sort of warlord, a roaming pirate who's going around and, you know, just raiding and pillaging and plundering and raping. And this, this then probably builds him a reputation for being a real tough guy. 
So uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts from the Princess Bride, right? Some something like that. So he's he's got this reputation. I mean, he's he's a he, I don't know what I, I think all those pirates is a good image to have in our minds. Uh, previously, uh, one of my guests had uh, talked about Abimelech as a, a mob boss, that sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he, yeah. he's he's gathered around himself these worthless fellows, these empty fellows, pirates of sorts, brigands, uh, just unsavory characters. And, and he's going about pillaging, roving the land. He's, he's not generally what you would call a, a good guy unless you're looking for someone to come and defeat some enemies. And that is what the people of Gilead are actually going to need. And we're going to see how that plays out on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. Tuesday's Rumination Law and Gospel will include both myself, Tom Baker, and Mark Smith in preparing you to sing the hymn of the week for the following Sunday, which always focuses on the salvation won for us by the life, death, and resurrection of both Jesus and through Him, our death and resurrection. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Five years after being exposed for selling aborted baby body parts for profit, abortion forces are still persecuting the journalists who uncovered them. Thomas More Society attorney Peter Breen discusses the status of the case 2.30 Wednesday and 9.30 Saturday on Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 28th, and we are studying Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. We've got Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we met Jephthah the Gileadite, a mighty warrior, but the son of a prostitute has a, a chip on his shoulder because he's been kicked out by his brothers, his those who are full sons of, of Gilead, his father, and Gilead's wife. And he's left. He's in the land of Tov. He's, he's got a, a band of pirates and brigands following him. He's, he's doing all kinds of pillaging, roving the land. And it doesn't seem like the, the most uh, faithful character in the world. But let's see how the text progresses. We're now in Judges 11, verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, 
That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Right, we'll pause there. So here's the, the, we saw this in chapter 10, where the Ammonites have come against the people of Israel. They've made war against Israel, and now Gilead is going to do something about it. So they go and call Jephthah, who, you know, when you're looking to get rid of a foreign army, a guy like Jephthah is the kind of guy that you would call for. But my question for you, Pastor Roth, is this, though, in other accounts from judges when they when they come about you get a phrase something like the lord raised up othniel or the lord raised up ehud or in the case of barak deborah goes and and gives the word of the lord to barak the lord comes and speak to gideon himself that seems to be missing here so far from the jephthah narrative is this a well, uh, maybe to put it in, in more modern terms, is this a mediated divine call that we're seeing here? What's what's going on here with the elders going to Jephthah? Uh, it's striking. I, I mean, there really is no express commissioning of Jephthah here from the Lord. And um, so I, I don't know whether that in, you know indicates that we should should be a little bit more skeptical about things that come out of Jephthah's mouth as we read forward, especially maybe his theology uh, and his, his view towards um, the gods of other nations. Um, yeah, I, I, I really don't know exactly what to make of that, but it is uh, we do see the Lord seeing and hearing um, all of Jephthah's words. Jephthah right. spoke all his words before the Lord, so clearly the Lord is watching. If the Lord didn't want Jephthah to go on this mission, then he certainly would have stepped in. So at a minimum, we've got the Lord's permissive will going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do call upon the name of the Lord to witness between them, and, and they, they develop a covenant then. Right. And, and later, I mean, to be fair, later in the narrative, when what we'll pick up tomorrow in verse 29 of this chapter, it does say that the Spirit of the Lord comes yep. upon Jephthah. That's right. Like, other, yeah. like in other judges. So Absolutely. he's not— Well, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think that this would just be more of a, a democratically elected judge. Sure, sure. Right. It's it's not like he's uh he's not completely unauthorized or anything like that. It's just maybe a different way that that he comes as the judge compared to some of the others. So the the elders of Gilead go to Jephthah and and there's this conversation but he doesn't come right away. Take us into this conversation, this negotiation that's taking place. Yeah, I actually took a couple of graduate seminars on uh, seminars on uh, di- diplomacy in Greek and Latin literature, and so I really enjoyed this section because he's he's not. I mean, he's clearly a very effective leader, as you know, a mighty warrior, but he's also very clearly a canny diplomat. So mm-hmm. I, I I think that the uh, the Gileadites probably are surprised that 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 this is the tack he takes. They just wanted him to go in with the guns a blazing. Um, but yeah, we we get this uh, this great story of, of him sending messengers uh, to to kind of appeal to the biblical history and God's dealings with Israel and give a, a justification for why uh, the Israelite territory should be held by them and not by the Ammonites. 
Right. I mean, Jephthah, here we do get to, we get a bit more of a picture of Jephthah. Those first three verses paint him as the kind of guy you probably don't want your daughter to marry. But but then as we meet more of him and we hear what he actually has to say, he does prove himself to be, I mean, pretty shrewd, I guess, is, is what we can say about him so far, that that he's got this, you know, they, they say, come be a, a general of sorts. And he's like, no, nah, you, you kicked me out. I need more than that to come mm-hmm. back. And so they yeah. agree essentially to make him a, a leader of their of their people before he before he does anything for them. And then they do give witness you know, the Lord is the witness of this agreement. So, I mean, they at least have some sense of the Lord as the God that they need to go before and, and maybe make some kind of a vow to each other. That last phrase of, of verse 11, Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Often, I mean, almost sounds official in a, in a certain mm-hmm. degree, like like maybe he even goes to the tabernacle. Well, I guess the tabernacle is not at Mizpah, but, but before a, a Levite of some sort, he makes this official, it seems. Yeah, it does. But I do think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that he started out as, as a brigand and, and obviously, you know, looking for booty and, and plunder. Now he recognizes that there's a greater spoil to be had. Uh, he could be head of a particular region. So he's got mm-hmm. political aspirations. Sure, sure. I mean, we see the, those things in the background going on. But at the same time, Hebrews 11, that this is one of the men who lives by faith. So we don't want to lose sight of that either. Oh, we see certainly, that, that, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's keep going. There's the, the next, I'm going to not go to the whole next section because there's going to be a really long chunk of, of text. But at this point, we've got Jephthah who has agreed now to be the head of Gilead. And he is a part of that role is going to go and fight against the Ammonites. But before he goes and fights against the Ammonites, he's going to try more of this negotiation. We've seen him as a skilled negotiator already. This is really the only only time in the book of Judges where we see much of an effort at diplomacy, uh, if we want to call it that. Samson, I suppose, has some some conversations with the Philistines, but those usually aren't don't seem to be made in too good of faith. Um, Jephthah, Jephthah here, it seems, is going to negotiate. So let's let's see how that starts. Now in Judges 11, we're picking up verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. I think I'll pause there. It's it's hard to, to break it up. Uh, Pastor Roth, so they're going to have Jephthah, and I think just to set the scene, they're sending messengers back and forth. So this is taking you know a couple days probably. This isn't sort of mm-hmm. just a, an in-person conversation. And... They're going to argue about history, it sounds like. What's going on? Yeah, so, all right, let's go back. The background here um, from Deuteronomy 2, um, I'll read a few verses there. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, that's Moses, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession. And so this then takes us back into Genesis 19. Um, and, and of course, you remember, 
Abraham and and Lot had had parted ways. Abraham gave Lot the better part of the land, but then after the after Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife turns into salt, this is what we're told. Genesis 19:36 to 38. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. <laughs> well, this is quite a, a sordid uh, background for the Ammonites and Moabites. Uh, and, and really, you know, thinking Joshua judges Ruth, we are going to get the Moabites, Ruth, uh, in the next book of the Bible. Right. And, and so the, and the, the background, of course, you know, Lot had left Sodom and Gomorrah. His wife turned back, was turned to a pillar of salt. The two yep. daughters didn't know how they were going to keep their father's line going or their lines yep. going. And so they get him drunk on successive yep. nights and they become pregnant by him. And that's where the Moabites and Ammonites come from. It is a very sordid history, as you said. But it, but it is important to keep in mind for the Old Testament that that these they're related to each other yep. and and that that makes a difference um and here yep. we've got the ammonites and then as you said the the moabites coming up so the the question is going to become well whose whose history is right here they is the king of Ammon right in his history, or is Jephthah right in the way that he recounts his history? So I'm going to go ahead and, and read this long message now that Jephthah sends to the king of the Ammonites in response to, to his claim. So again, the king of the Ammonites has claimed, Israel took away our land unlawfully, so give it back to us peacefully. Does, I mean, he almost sounds like there's perhaps a, a bit of a hope for a peaceful resolution, but Jephthah is going to, to dispute that history. So again, this is verse 15 now and following. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. 
but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. That's where our text for today ends. That was the rest of Judges 11, verses 15 through 28. So a, a long, a long message. Jephthah is going to recount the history of the people of Israel entering into this land, this whole land claim. So I guess the, the first question, Pastor Roth, as we think about it just on a very large scale is, is Jephthah right in the way that he recounts the history here? I think as with all, all diplomacy, you know, he's going to emphasize the things that strengthen his claims and then omit details that would potentially throw into question what he's arguing. Um, so, I, I, you know, I am certainly no expert in, um, you know, Old Testament history, but I, I do think that there are details that, um, from, from the events that actually are recounted in the Pentateuch, that would uh, weaken his position. But again, this is diplomacy. Sure. So, I mean, so basically, what's what is the overall gist of his argument? What's he? What's he throughout the the details? And and we can find these details within, particularly, I think the book of Numbers is going to have most of them. What what's the overall gist of his argument that he's presenting here to the king of Ammon? Yeah. So um, so so first of all. The Israelites had been careful to respect Moabite and Ammonite boundaries, and then when they had, um, uh, then and, and when the Amorites had had been in territory that the Lord wanted to take over, in other words, they were illegitimately in these, this territory. It, verse twenty-three says the Lord dispossessed the Amorites. <laughs> so, if they were driven out of that area, then that means that they did not have a legitimate claim to it, uh, and had essentially been trespassing. Um, and then also he, he appeals to the fact that the Moabites had not made any sort of claim to to the to the land, um, and, and over a three hundred year period. So if they hadn't made a claim, then the Ammonites certainly didn't have any more right to it than the Moabites did. Mm-hmm. So I mean, to to a degree, there's a couple of things I think maybe we could summarize. Almost a this maybe isn't quite the right thing, but a might makes right sort of argument like we we took this land and we did so lawfully from the from the hand of our god and i want to come back to that particularly because i think that's a, a big part of what we want to understand here that that the lord was behind the land that we did take now we were respectful uh, i think you could also maybe use the there's that cliche the possession is nine tenths of the law is that is that how that goes and and they Jephthah says look we've we've had this land for 300 years yeah. now and you haven't done anything yeah. so what like what's squatters the right yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so so he, he marshals all these these variety of arguments as to why Israel's holding of this land is in fact legitimate. That the king of Ammon does not at this time have any real argument to receive this land peacefully or not, and and he should simply just just back off. But there are a couple of spots where I think we can dig a little deeper, and and one is the matter where Jephthah in verse twenty four brings up their God and the land that the God of the mm-hmm. Ammonites has given them to possess yep. versus what the Lord has given his people to possess, really taking this to a, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about Jephthah on, on the surface seems like a, a pretty, a pretty rough ombre, not the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry, but, but here he, he reveals at least a, a little bit of theology, some good, some maybe bad What's the what's the point he's bringing up? And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, so you you can say it how you want, Pastor Roth. Chemosh, their God. 
he's given the Ammonites land to possess, Jephthah says. What's what's the point that he's making? What should we draw from this? Yeah, I mean, it, it almost sounds like Jephthah's um, granting the existence and reality of Chemosh and the uh, the reality of the Lord. Um, and, and there are liberal scholars today who will argue that the uh, the Old Testament people were um, so-called henotheists rather than monotheists. That is, they believed that only one God should be worshipped, but that there were lots of other gods out there that were real gods. And um, now, I mean, one way of looking at this is that Je- Jephthah just simply has an imperfect faith. And so he's he's got a, a, a henotheism or a polytheism going on. And so, you know, he believes that the Lord is real, but he also wrongly believes that Chemosh is real. And in his arguments, he's basically, you know, assuming that Chemosh is real um, as a way of furthering his negotiations. Uh, I mean, just think, look at what we're going to see in, in the next section. You've got a guy who's going to actually make a vow to the Lord that he will ultimately sacrifice his daughter. Um, whether whether he does it or not, y'all will talk about that tomorrow. But, you know, for, for a true believer to even conceive of this means that the guy's got a faulty faith. So um, I think that, um, you know, th- that's one way of looking at it is that, that Jephthah's just flat out wrong and that Chemosh is just a, a made-up god, um, just like a bailer uh, would be. But uh, I do want to throw out one interesting perspective on this, and, and that is uh, St. Augustine thought that the pagan gods of the Greeks, the Romans, and people like uh, the Ammonites were actually demons. And so you'd have, you know, like the wooden idols that would, you know, obviously be nothingness. They would just have no, no, no animation to them. But beyond, behind these things were actually demons. And I do want to talk about briefly then the um, the very real... Um, you know, understanding of demonology and the the activity of Satan in the thought of um, Luther and the thought of Augustine and um, the early church, and I I would argue the entire scripture. And it's something that we perhaps simply do not uh, give enough credence to, that um, we forget that Satan's living and active, and that he's got got spiritual beings that work for him, and um, they can take on all sorts of different forms and do all sorts of different things, and um, maybe we need to um, have our imagination uh, um, uh, illuminated a bit regarding this matter, because we live in such a rationalistic, mechanistic sort of world, assuming things just kind of like follow universal laws and whatnot. Um, I do think we forget the reality of demons, and and whether or not, uh, you know, you could speak of of, uh, Chemosh being, you know, quote-unquote real, there's no question that demonic activity was behind his, um, behind him. Behind I, I think, I mean, just to, to get us started on that, that conversation, that I, I think, you know, St. Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians. He, in chapters 8 through 10, he's talking about food that's sacrificed to idols. And on the one hand, he says, you know, we know that an idol isn't real. Yep. But as his argument progresses and you get into chapter 10, he, he ends up saying that, well, what I'm saying is when something is sacrificed to an idol, what it's really sacrificed to is a demon. And that's why you can't participate in, in that sort of sacrifice to it. You know, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, he'll say. You can't yep. eat at the table that's of the Lord right. and the table of demons. So yep. I, I think that, I mean, this thinking, this reality is there throughout the scriptures that on the one hand, 
idols are not real. That that little statue that you set mm-hmm. up is is no god, and it can't do anything for you at all. At the same time, when you start to worship that idol, what you really end up doing is you, you you're putting yourself in the service of of Satan and his demons. Yep. And, and if we lose right. sight of that reality, we lose sight of the seriousness of, of sin and idolatry together. Yeah, and we also um, it, it allows us to realize. Um, that that in the Old Testament, this is entirely a battle between God and Satan, mm-hmm. and that that you know you remember back when we we talked about the Exodus, the Lord says, "I'm going to execute judgment on the gods of the Egyptians," and um, you know this. So so I, I think it's because you don't hear the language of demons a lot in the Old Testament, it's easy to lose this reality. But if in fact demons are behind the the gods of the nations. That makes it an entirely spiritualistic battle, um, of course, with physical manifestations. Um, but, but anyway, I, I, and, and to, to bring it to our, maybe to, to think in terms of what demons can do as, uh, if they are to, to set themselves up as gods, demons today could, could actually set themselves up as abstractions. So socialism, capitalism, communism, whatever. Abstractions uh, that, that people put their faith in very well could be animated by demons. Mm, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's an important reality for us to keep in mind in a world where we're so materialistic and we, we look at what's physical for real. Is, is there a scientific study that's been done to, to prove it? And, and we forget this very real reality of, of demons that exist behind our idolatry that is, is always cropping up. And I think when we, you know, we talk about demons and idolatry, particularly, we also want to remember that, that every time we're sinning against any commandment, we're breaking the first, we're not fearing, loving, and trusting God above all things. And, and we're thinking about idolatry. And so to, to recognize this reality, I think it, it helps us to, to take the matter, hopefully more seriously, to face it with repentance uh, rather than any sort of self-justification on our part. Pastor Roth, we're, we're under about four minutes here, and I want to make sure there's, there's another matter that I think is important to pick up from Jeff this speech. Where, where he ends up leaving it. And after he, he presents his argument, he says, look, I haven't done anything wrong against you, King of Ammon. And he ultimately calls upon the Lord to be the judge. And, I mean, we were in the book of Judges. We've been seeing all these mm-hmm. various judges. Yeah. Here you have one of them actually recognizing who the true judge is. That's a pretty significant moment, I think. Well, I mean, that, that really is striking. And I mean, maybe this gives us the explanation for why there's no commissioning. Uh, of of uh, Zephtha, because the ultimate judge then is the Lord, and He's the one who's going to send His Spirit in the next section uh, into Zephtha, and then execute judgment. So maybe the 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 Holy Spirit inspired the narrative to be written in such a way that there's not this. All right, Jephtha, you're the man, you know. But in fact, Jephtha comes to the recognition that you know it is the Lord who judges. And um, no, I, I, that's a great point. So, Pastor Roth, we've got like a minute and a half here, and I just just help us wrap this text up. You know, we've we've talked about a variety of things here, and in terms of the narrative itself, it hasn't moved a ton. Just summarize things for us, and and particularly help us see Christ in this text, or yeah, from this well, text. Let me say it that right. way: see Christ. Well, from this I mean, text. I think that that the the last section that we talked about, the Lord, the Judge, decide. <laughs> between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. I mean, we confess this in the Creed every week, don't we? From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So um, Christ the King, Christ the Judge, 
um, you know, when he is going to come on the last day and accompanied by the holy angels, he'll sit upon his glorious throne and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the uh, the sheep, the righteous, will inherit eternal life and the, the goats will be sent into everlasting fire. So uh, this passage and all of Judges, um, at the entire Bible really, shows us the two ways that you and Pastor Zimmerman talked about yesterday. Um, there's the way of righteousness, the way of the true God, and then there's the way of idolatry and unrighteousness. And so um, we, we shouldn't get so, maybe, we, we, we tend to get hung up on, you know, morality and the second table of the law, but everything goes back to the first commandment. Um, and, and the first commandment, um, you know, you shall have no other gods spoken by the Lord himself. Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the incarnate one who suffered, died, and rose for our sins, and, and our justification, um, and now judges us righteous for the sake of his own righteousness. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Jephthah the Gileadite, a mighty warrior, but the son of a prostitute, kicked out by his own family members, a rather unsavory man with worthless fellows all around him, a band of pirates, and yet called upon by his people eventually to be their military leader, to deliver them. And he goes forth in faith, uh, a fallen, uh, a faulty faith, sure, but faith nonetheless in the Lord Jesus Christ to be that final, ultimate judge to deliver Jephthah, the Gileadites, and his people, you and me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.